So we are going to continue in a sermon series that we've been in called Psalms and Proverbs, Teachings from the Pastor to the Palace. So in this series, we've really been discussing the deep emotions of the Psalms and the wisdom of the Proverbs. So today we're going to be um, in Psalm chapter 37, verses 1 through 9. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not have a Bible today, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that copy with you today. We would love for you to have that. So if you're able, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Psalm 37. Hear the word of the Lord. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You guys be seated. Good morning. I want to welcome you here. If it's your first time, uh, my name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we're just so grateful that you chose to make us a part of your week. And so if, uh, if someone hasn't already grabbed you and um, just told you a little bit about who we are, we're excited that you're here. One of the ways that you can make yourself known and we can get to know you a little better is maybe to fill out a Connect card. I try to say this at the beginning of gathering because uh, it can sometimes be easy to forget at the end. They should be in the seat backs in front of you, but we'd love to get to know you. Like Jenna said, we are in a sermon series of the Psalms and the Proverbs called uh, From the Pasture to the Palace. And we've been talking about uh, emotions, or uh, this is our, we call it, in the field series. Uh, we haven't called it that yet. I'm just kidding. I made that up. Uh, but it is what it is. Uh, we've been talking about emotions from the uh, songs, the book of Psalms, or the songs, the song book of the Old Testament. Uh, David wrote many, the majority of the songs, but they're written by multiple authors, and how it, culturally we've been talking about on one side of the road, we can be very repressive of emotion. Uh, we recognize that heightened emotion leads us to places we don't want to go, so we become uh, overwhelmingly uh, repressive. Or on the flip side, we just uh, culturally will say, you know, everything that I feel, everything that I'm experiencing needs to be expressed, needs to be valued, needs to be cared about, and so uh, therefore you just need to deal with however I feel. Um, and this is where you get the memes on Facebook, you know, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and the Psalms give us kind of the third way, right? And the third way is that we ought not be emotionally repressive because in the end what that leads to is a different kind of sin. Uh, sometimes you can kind of have that low-level residual anger as you've repressed these emotions over time and they kind of pop off on the people you love the most. Or on the flip side, we shouldn't just be uh, emotionally accepting, accepting of everything that we feel as truth, but David offers a third way, which is that we can simultaneously feel and experience emotion, and bring it to God so that he might help us to regulate what's true and what's false, what's honorable and what's dishonorable, right? And, and he can begin to, to help us to sort through what's happening. 
in the mixed up, muddled mess that is our heart. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about desire. And I think it's important that I say this. Desire is not just an emotion, but it's an emotion that results in a multitude of varied emotions. So theologically speaking, desire is something that we consider to be the primary driver of behavior. Uh, Or to say it another way, we typically do the things that will help or that we think will help us attain or possess what we desire most. The things that you want, you start to wire your life to do things to get that. Does that make sense? And so if you have desires in your heart, that's going to drive you to do. And here's the thing. Humanity tends to and leans towards desiring similar things. That although the way in which we go about getting those things can be a, a crazy amount of different, right? But nonetheless, we, we desire similar things. Security, peace, comfort, happiness, pleasure. Those are the things that we deep down desire, and then what we think will get us that leads us to our behaviors. Now, here's the thing. If that's true, it's obviously a dangerous truth, isn't it? Because like on one end, you might look at that and say, oh yeah, everybody gets to seek their happiness. Everybody gets gets to pursue their desires of their heart. That's a good thing. And it might end up like a rom-com on Netflix and everybody gets a happy ending, right? Because everybody gets to just pursue what they want. On the flip side, though, on the other hand, it also could end up in complete chaos, right? Like, the Bible's a really good record of this. Like, if I desire cheeseburgers every day for lunch and dinner, and then I eat them because they taste good, that would be detrimental not only to my own health, but to my marriage and its well-being, right? (laughs) Or I desire financial security. So on one hand, hey, that might mean you get a job. Like, someone might need to hear that this morning. Get a job. That's a good thing. On the flip side, it might mean I rob a bank. That's not the best way to produce financial security, right? Or I desire my neighbor's car or a car like it. On one hand, it might be I want to save a little bit of money and then therefore go. Or you could just rob him and take his car. That's the negative side, right? I desire, I desire power over others, so I'm going to scheme and I'm going to manipulate to get it. So if we're just pursuing desires and desires are held up, as the primary drivers of behavior, and there's no limitations to that. It could go badly. This is the, the Bible's record of that starts in like Genesis chapter number six. It says the whole world's corrupt, so much so that God floods the whole world, right? That's why we have the rainbow in the sky. It's a covenant from God. He'll never do that again. But it was the world had gone so corrupt, chasing after their desires without any limitation, and sin had filled the earth in such an awful way, right? Later on, the book of Judges, it says that every man did what was right in his own eyes in Israel, and it just went to chaos. If you've never read the book of Judges, there's some stories in there that you're just like, what is happening here? I mean, I don't want to, because we have children in the room, I won't share them with you, but just, you know, if you need some light reading, go check that out. It's crazy what happens in that book. And so the question becomes this, it's not whether or not desire is a driver of human behavior, it is. The question becomes, What does godly desire look like? What is ungodly or evil desire, right? Like, how do we deal with the fact that sometimes we want things that maybe we ought not want? That we we desire things that end up leading to and lending itself to the destruction of either ourselves or others, right? Or check this out. This is the one that Psalm 37 is mostly going to deal with. How about this one? How do we deal with the fact that people who have evil desires and pursue them, succeed at it at times, even though at times it's obvious that they don't honor God, they don't honor his way, right? The evil people win, right? How do we deal with the fact that like the end of a Disney movie isn't always the end of the story? That's what Psalm 37 really deals with mostly. 
And so maybe most pertinently is what's kind of happening beneath the surface of desires for us as Christians and as human beings. And I think one way to look at this before we kind of pray and kick off, children are a great way to start considering desires because kids, they just don't have a veneer around their desires, right? From the moment that they're infants, they have a way to communicate to you what they want. I know that because some of you are sleepy right now and you're sleepy for a reason, right? That baby is going to tell you in a way that they are communicating, I need to be fed or I need to be held or I just want you to wake up because I'm mad, right? When they start to develop language, kids are able to just tell you and then sometimes it's cute and funny and then sometimes you just want them to shut it right around the right people. They'll say exactly what they're thinking, exactly what they want. And then over time, you know, you think that your kids are growing up and they get teenagers, like starts to become more nuanced. And then every once in a while with your teenage kids, aren't you just like, man, that's just, are they just dumb? You know, it's like, why are they just so obviously wanting these silly things, right? Okay, as we grow older and as we mature, here's the thing about desire is that we are still, our, our desires are still driving human behavior, but it begins to be more layered and more nuanced. And so as we kind of walk through Psalm 37, what you'll find is that Psalm 37 is kind of like when you go to the chiropractor and you got a crick in your neck and they start pressing on a totally unrelated part of your back to relieve it? That's kind of what David does here. It's like you think you know what you really desire and why you're having this problem with the evil desire, but that's really a secondary cause. He's going down to somewhere else, right? Or it's like you get a headache and you think that maybe you know, what you need is, I have a headache because maybe I bumped my head. Well, headaches aren't always bumping your head. It's like you just need to drink water. Right? Sometimes they seem unrelated, but they're very related. And so here's what I want to pray before we jump in, because something supernatural has to happen in order for us to really glean this morning, and that is that the Spirit will start to reveal to us what seemingly is unrelated, deeper desires that spring forth these secondary desires that are evil and unhealthy and all this stuff, right? Because sometimes what we'll do is we'll say, man, I'm noticing this sin in my life, and I want to kill it. I don't want it to be there. But the problem is that we're just treating symptoms. We're not treating causes, so what I want to pray is that the Spirit would do that. And I joked with the nine. I said, will you pray with me? And then I thought, who really wants to pray that prayer? No, God, dig up the deeper. Desire. Okay, so I'm going to pray for you because I have the face mic, okay? But if you're brave, you can pray with me. And let's ask the Lord to do that. Father, um, we confess that although we like to believe we know ourselves, the truth is at times we are even an enigma to ourselves. And um, maybe even more tragically, Lord, we, we just don't know you as we ought, nor do we have that desire to pursue. So Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you uncover what needs to be uncovered? Would you challenge what needs to be challenged? Would you convict where conviction is necessary? And would you bring comfort in the gospel? Because Lord, without you, we, we really do have no hope. And so we love you, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So point number one from Psalm 37, ungodly desire is born from the heart of distrust. Ungodly desire is born from a heart of distrust. That's what David's getting at here in Psalm 37, and it's what's, it's what's hinted at constantly throughout the Psalms. When David or others lose sight of God's abundant nature, they begin to exhibit a few emotions that really are rooted in ungodly desire. You'll find in the Psalms jealousy. You'll find in the Psalms envy you'll find in the Psalms unholy ambition. Like unholy ambition rears itself in David's life when he takes the census toward the end of his life, right? 
You guys remember the story? David takes a census of all of his soldiers, and it doesn't even tell you why God's mad. It just says that God was, his, his anger was kindled against David for doing this, and there was this moment of David having to decide how his judgment was going to be laid upon him. It's a really intense scene toward the end of David's life, but it was David not trusting that God was the protector of Israel, but trusting instead in the number of soldiers he had in his army. And so in that root of distrust, he began to desire to know numbers rather than knowing God and trusting God, right? You'll find this riddled throughout the Psalms. I want to read Psalm chapter number 73. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 14. This is not a Psalm of David. This is a Psalm of a man named Asaph. And Asaph is a Levite in David's time who would have been maybe like a choir leader, okay? And he wrote this song. Psalm 73 verses 1 through 14 says this. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I joked with the nine, I don't even know what that looks like. I want that diet, okay. <laughs> they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, their tongues struck through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. What's Asaph after here? What's he wrestling with? He's looking around at the wicked and he begins to envy their perceived flourishing despite the fact that they do not acknowledge God, they do not honor God, they do not worship God, and he's starting to get frustrated at it. He's wrestling with something that I think if we're honest is we really often wrestle with ourselves that we live in a world that is full of people and God reigns on the just and the unjust. He has common grace that he extends to every single person and even sometimes the children of God seem to be inferior and are mistreated in a world that is full of people who hate God, that are succeeding. And Asaph's just being real here, isn't he? Like when I first read that as a young Christian, I was like, wow, what a jerk. And then I read it like later on as I started to actually walk with Christ and realize that that's a real emotion that you start to feel. This doesn't seem fair. Or to put it another way, God is holding out on me here. Because it sure doesn't seem like following God is bringing joy when I look at their life and they're getting joy without him. And I look at my life and there's hardship. I think David's wrestling with the exact same question, but what we know about Psalm 37 with the commentators is this is David at the end of his life, a man of older age and wisdom, and he handles it a little bit differently. Rather than simply just pouring out his heart before God, which we know David did often, right? Like I was, as I was preparing for this, I loved that Psalm 37, the title is, He Will Not Forsake His Saints. Psalm 38 is, Do Not Forsake Me, O Lord, from David. <laughs> okay. So we know that he does pour out his heart, but this is older David, and it almost is written in a different way, where he's preaching to himself and to others, the next generation. Like the song of Psalm 37 is preaching the truth of the gospel to this issue of envy and jealousy towards the wicked. 
David says, fret not when the wicked succeed. Don't get angry. Forsake wrath. Don't, don't fall into that trap. And here's the thing. This idea of having the seed of doubt sown in your heart that God is holding out on you, that's not new to the Psalms. It's actually in the very first initial story of the Bible. So I want to turn quickly to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. You can keep your thumb in Psalm 37 if you want to. But Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 tells us the story of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and what actually happens as Satan begins to sow the seeds of doubt. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, catch this, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what is the serpent's dialogue and point here? You're not going to die if you eat it. God's not after your protection. God's holding out on you. You thought he gave you everything in abundant grace, but he really only gave you some, and he preserved for himself what, what makes him completely happy, completely joyful, completely at peace, because he doesn't want you to be like him. God's selfish. That's what the serpent's seed of doubt is, the seed of distrust. He's laying the groundwork here for ungodly desire. And I think it's interesting that it is not recorded up until this moment that Eve ever desired the tree in the garden at all to eat. Like I always, as a, as a child and growing up on the story, I kind of assumed that Adam and Eve are just walking around the tree like, oh man, I want to eat it so bad, but it's against the rules. Oh, I want to eat that so badly, but I can't because God said. And you know why I thought that? Because that's how we exist, right? Like we grew up as children and we're like, oh man, I want another cookie, but my mom. <laughs> right? Because we grow up in a sinful, broken world, so we just assume we can't take the things we want because we desire the things we ought not desire from birth, but not Adam and Eve. They were not born in sin. And so in this moment, actually, it's never recorded in the Bible that she or Adam ever wanted to eat of that tree until the seed of distrust is sown. And then all of a sudden it says, verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... And that the tree was to be, give me that word, desired. Now all of a sudden she thinks it's desirable. To make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate, guys, total failure. She had already been experiencing what the Bible calls, it's a great Hebrew word. We don't have an English word that we, could, that we could lift up to say what we all really, really want in life. But if we did have one, it would be like shalom. It says that's what they were in, Adam and Eve. It, it, this word shalom represents peace, joy, comfort, contentment, uh, union. There's this, this amazing word that is so rich with meaning that we just don't have an English translation for. That's already what she experienced Satan sowed a seed of doubt saying, no, you don't have it yet. You're incomplete. You're not whole. You're broken. And you need to be made whole by doing this, which would actually be distrusting God. And so the irony of ironies here is that as she takes, she actually goes from whole to broken when she thought she was making the other movement, right? Now, here's the thing. 
If you consider your own life as we read that story, I know it's easy to think of this really theoretically, but let's bring it down to base level. Do you and I not find our story here too? Okay, have you ever had a moment that you were entirely content with your iPhone until you saw your friend's new model? Anybody, right? Like you didn't even know there was a new model. You loved your iPhone. Like, this thing is great. And then your friend took out his iPhone and turned into a blow-up raft and he was just going down the river in it. You know, you're like, I didn't know that iPhone could do that, you know? Connects to all sorts of devices. It's like connecting to mainframes, you know, and the government security systems. I need that. Like the things we think we need. I don't even go off on a tangent. The apps, you know? Like, oh, I have to have it. Now you crave it. You didn't even know it existed. Louis C.K. has an amazing, uh, amazing uh, comedy routine on this that I've never heard. And he, he talks about, like, Wi-Fi in the air. And he's like, you know, the, the people getting on the plane, they sit down on the plane, and, and they say, hey, we have something to offer you. It's the very first time we're doing this. We're going to give you Wi-Fi on your flight. And people are like, oh, my gosh. And, you know, they're excited. They get on their phone. And 30 minutes in, you know, the Wi-Fi goes away. And all of a sudden, everybody, this flight's terrible. How, how's the Wi-Fi going to go out? You didn't even know there was a thing like Wi-Fi in the air, you're flying through the air in a metal tube thousands of feet above the, and you're mad because you were inconvenienced about something you didn't know existed before you entered the flight. <laughs> Ladies, that moment that your wedding ring was beautiful until you saw that snotty coworker of yours with that rock on her hand. And then you're like, my wedding ring is trash. It's garbage, you know. You didn't tell your husband when he came home why you were frustrated. He's trying to have to guess because that's the things you like to do. What's wrong with you? Nothing's wrong. What do you want for dinner? You know, you're just kind of putting your hand out there, like visible. Your husband's trying to massage it because we're idiots. Like, we don't really know. Is your hand hurting you? It just seems like you got a tick. <laughs> Guys, your mower was fine until you saw your neighbor on the 360. You're like, oh, man, I need to do that. Your yard's like 7 by 10, but you need one, you know? I got to have it. <laughs> And here's the thing, it manifests itself, you think, as a horizontal problem at first, because you're like, I can't buy this because my wife or husband won't let me. I can't have those because my boss never gives me a raise. That's the real problem. And so we start to engage. This is where unhealthy desire starts to burn. We start to figure out ways to manipulate because that's the real problem. We're being held down by all these people. But really deep down, it's a vertical problem because what you're really saying is I'm not the type of person who gets 360-degree mowers because God doesn't have that in the cards for me. It's really a vertical problem. We're upset that God doesn't have this kind of thing for me. And check this out. It's not just with possessions. We experience distrust with things much deeper the state of our marriage in relation to our friend's marriage or the perceived marriage that we get on social media, financial security that we have or do not have, health issues that we have or do not have, the suffering and hardships we experience or do not experience, the diplomas that we did get or did not get or we did the name at the top of the diploma of the school or institution you went to or the one you wish it was. So now you have to have your son or daughter go there so that you can reattach yourself to that one. The natural abilities or talents that we have or do not possess. I was joking with the nine. I was like, you're, you know, you go walk on the basketball court, guys, and someone else jumps higher than you. Like, no one jumps higher than me. That's because you're always, like, on the lookout for the junior hires. You know, you're like, all right, we're well, going to <laughs> jump in the game, pick up, right? Someone always jumps higher, shoots better. Right, girls? 
You go to the gym, someone's always going to have a physique that you want. The spiritual gifts we've been given are not given. Sometimes this happens in the church. Oh, she's so this or he's so that. I wish I was that. What happened in Corinth when Paul was telling them, why is the eye say to the ear having a need of you? Like, it's these people who really elevated the mouth in the church, right? I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And Paul keeps saying, who are they but servants of Christ who were given gifts? They're, they're nobodies. He says, we're nobodies. We're just, we're paupers who've been given charity from an abundant God. And yet we have this Envy, ungodly desire that gets birthed out of sinful distrust. And it doesn't matter if it's jealousy, which is I gotta keep what's mine, or if it's envy, I gotta have what's hers, or if it's unholy ambition, I will attain what I crave at all costs. What David seems to be doing here is he keeps reminding himself in Psalm 37, don't fall into that trap. Here are the words we find through verses one through nine. Fret not when evildoers succeed. Be not envious of them. Fret not, he says again. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not for the third time. Which fret in the original Hebrew is this idea of burning. It's this kind of seething. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's where like people recognize it in you, but they're not sure what's going on. You're not saying anything, but it's just the sizzle that's happening because you see something you perceive as unjust. Point number two from Psalm 37, godly desire is born from the heart of trust. Now, this shouldn't be a shocker. I'm not like some, that, that's just the inverse, right? If, if it's distrust that creates ungodly desire, godly desire is born out of trust. Another way to put it is uh, a theology of scarcity produces ungodly desire, where we think that God's holding out on us where we think that there's only limited resources that God's willing to dole out, and therefore we need to make sure we keep ours. But a theology of abundance where we have a God who's gracious, and if he's withholding it, it's for our good and his glory, it produces godly desire. And David has a ton to say here in Psalm 37. Listen to what David says about godly desire. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. I love that he brings a heart, posture, and action. Part of trusting in God is choosing to do good, to have a desire to do good when you feel that you're being wronged, right? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, we're going to talk about this in a little bit. That is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible because it's half quoted. It's quoted like this, God will give you the desires of your heart. That's a dangerous theological mishap, okay? We'll get there in a minute. Commit your way to the Lord, Trust in him, and he will act. Be still before him. How about this one? This is going to be like vinegar to the lips. Wait patiently for him. Patiently. My uncle used to say, when I was real little, and I didn't know that this was a word. I didn't even know what he meant by it. He said, patience is a virtue. And I thought it was, I didn't know what virtue meant. I thought those were two words, vert and you. I was like, it's avert me. Like, it's a virtue. I didn't understand it till way later. Patience is a virtue. That's what he'd be saying to me when I was five. I'm like, let's go to the store. Let's go to the store. Let's go to the Patience is a virtue. <laughs> Patience is like vinegar to the lips when you are actually desiring something that's honorable, godly, holy, and it's not coming, isn't it? Like, I shared this with the nine. I'll share it with you as well. Like, 
Uh, here's one from, from our own personal life. My wife and I are in the process of trying to adopt our son's little sister. We met her when she was nine months old. We've done everything that you can do, raised the money, paid the f- fees, changed agencies, done two dossiers. If you don't know what that is, it's difficult. And she, she turned three years old last week. Still, still haven't even gotten to see her again. Why? That seems backward. Does that, does that not make you jive a little bit with what David and Asaph are going through here? It seems like that's the right thing. That's the no-brainer thing. With a God who controls everything, it seems like this would happen quickly. David, as an old man, preaches to himself through Psalm 37, wait patiently for God to act. Trust him. And, and, here's, and do good to others. Like Paul praises the Macedonians in the New Testament because they were givers, but not just because they were givers, but because they were givers and they were poor. They were poor as dirt. Jesus sits at the temple and everybody's coming to give with great pomp and circumstance. And here comes the widow with her two pennies, her mite, and she puts it in. He stops the disciples and says, she gave more than anyone else because she gave out of what she did not have. She gave out of weakness. Or in David's way here, court, it's not just that you have to trust me for your daughter. It's that you need to go and celebrate when others have kids. You need to be there with their babies. You need to hug on them. You need to tell them how happy you are. Do good and mean it. That's different, isn't it? It's we embrace the good. We don't just reject the bad. It's a whole, how do you have the power to do something like that? He goes on, he starts to say things like this. The righteous man is generous, patient, meek, and content, even with a little. Because when you have a little with God, you have more than the man who has much without him. C.S. Lewis took that a step further, and he said, if a man has nothing and has God, he has the same amount as a man who has everything and has God. (laughs) How? Well, it leads me to point number three. All godly desire is rooted in the desire for God himself. All godly desire is rooted in the desire for God himself. The Psalms give voice to a type of longing that is really foreign to our current modern church culture. Like we typically talk about God even in the way we we share the gospel. And listen, I want to be careful here because I believe that all of the great, beautiful, spiritual realities of the gospel are important and necessary for us to preach. So don't hear me saying that that's a bad thing. But when we exclusively talk about the gospel as the things that we've been saved from, and we forget about the things we've been saved to, the one who we have been saved to and what we've been saved for, I think that it's minimizing what Christ really did. It's not only that he gave us forgiveness. It's not only that he gave us uh, adoption. It's not only that he gave us reconciliation. This was all for a greater purpose that we would get God, not just the stuff that he offers this is the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it's a, it's a false gospel in that it offers you stuff and God is your way to get more stuff. And Romans 1 says that's really at the heart of sinful idolatry is that we love the creation and not the creator. The Psalms give a totally different voice to what it means to follow God. Like Psalm 42 says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants after you, O God. That psalm means when I was like, like a deer when he's panting in the desert, dying of thirst. That's how much I long for you, God. Notice, not I long to see your hand, not I long to see your abundant mercy, not I long to see you help me from Saul who's chasing me down and killing me. Listen, David says that a lot in the psalms, but many other times he just says, I just want you. I just want you. 
My soul longs for you like that. Or Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. In the watches of the night I meditate on you and tears flood my bed, he says. Longing for God. Or Asaph in Psalm 73 says, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, who is there beside you? Though my strength and my flesh may fail, you are my portion forever and ever. He's saying it's you that I want. Asaph says, everybody looking like they're succeeding, and I almost slipped, I almost stumbled because I said, I want that, and then I remembered what I really want is you. And because your right hand upholds me, I have you. So this gives clarity and context to David saying, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Listen to me, friends. If we aren't delighting in God If God were to give us the desires of our heart, it would be a travesty because it would lead to so much darkness. Now, there's a really important moment here in the Bible that we miss if we don't understand what's happening. Look at verse four and notice you see Lord is in all caps in your Bible. Do you see that? L-O-R-D, all caps. You'll find in the Old Testament that there will be Lord in all caps and sometimes it'll just be a a capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. Those are different words and they are so important. They're so important not because it changes if it says that, you know, I worship the Lord, lowercase O-R-D, or that they mean totally different things. They're both talking about God, but they're referencing him in a different way. David is referencing here Exodus chapter number three, verses 13 through 15, where Moses stood before the burning bush and said, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them that God has sent me, that they're going to be brought out of the land of Egypt, who should I tell them sent me? What is your name? If I don't have a name, they're going to think I'm crazy. And God says, I am who I am. Then he goes on to say, I am the Lord, L-O-R-D all caps. Everywhere in your Bible where you see that, it's actually translated Yahweh or King James Version, Jehovah, personal name of God, like Court or James or Scott or Mary. It's a personal name that God took upon himself and says, this will be my name. I'll be remembered by forever and ever. I am who I am is what it means. And meanings uh, meanings of name, that's important, right? God's name means I am who I am, the self-existent one. So think about this for a second. Moses comes face to face with the I am who I am and doesn't die. He gives him his name. And then David is hearkening back to this. And David's doing this saying, delight yourself in the I am. Delight yourself in the pre-existent, self-existent, eternal God who is a fountain of joy, that in him is the source of all joy. We were created by him and through him and for him. All things were created. Like this God, the sun rises in the morning at the bidding of Yahweh. (laughs) The one to whom, through whom, everything will give an account to him. And David says that, The gospel message is that he wants a personal relationship with you and I, that we would drink from that fountain and that we were created for that. So that in this interaction, in this delighting in Yahweh, the desires of our heart not only get fulfilled, they get changed and maybe in the reverse order. What you think you want, you don't really want. They are substitutes. Tim Keller calls them counterfeit gods. 
It's like when you think that you got the headache because you bumped your head, but you really need water. And when someone gives you ibuprofen, it just deadens temporarily the real issue, which is that you need a drink, right? Like you don't need another margarita, you need a bottle of water. And here's the thing, spiritually, you know what we're doing over and over and over again? Just drinking more margs and taking more ibuprofen. Hope it works. And David says, no, 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 no. Delight yourself in the I am, and then he'll fulfill you. I want to read to you in closing a story from Jesus as he, not by accident, has a conversation with a woman at the well, okay? And I want you to notice how this woman, he's walking her through and he's drawing her out in love. He, she keeps bringing to him what she thinks she desires. And Jesus is kind of drawing it out of her. And he pulls it up and then sets it aside. You don't really want that. He pulls it up and then he sets it aside. You don't really want that. He pulls it up and then he says, and then there's a great crescendo at the end where he reveals to her what she really wants. And then that story kind of ends. So let's, let's just read through this. And this is a... The close. John chapter number four. I'm going to read verses one through 26. It says, Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, only his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. I love that, by the way, just as a side note. All the people find out Jesus has got more disciples than John. Now it's like, let's go follow him. Jesus is like, oh, I'm not interested. He just dodges them. <laughs> I don't want these guys. And verse four, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus was wearied as he was from his journey. He was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour would be noon, okay, in the Jewish culture. So high noon, it's hot, Jesus is weary. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. <laughs> That's pretty presumptuous, isn't it? Watch verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give, him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to her, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now let's pause here. We don't know if she was being facetious. We don't know if she was being sarcastic. You might assume that she may have been, okay, because she was already a little bit frustrated that he was saying, give me water as a Jew, and she's a Samaritan. So it's almost like, uh, you won't talk to me unless you need me kind of thing. And then he says, well, I was actually being kind. You should be asking me for water. <laughs> it's already rough, right? Jesus says, if you knew who was asking you, you'd be asking me, everyone who drinks from this fountain will never thirst again. Or in other words, there might be two things she thinks she wants. A, a drink of water, that's pretty basic. Or she wants social acceptance as a Samaritan woman that she is not getting. And so she's almost telling him, uh, why are you talking to me now? Why don't, you, uh, why don't you make mention that you shouldn't be talking to me and now you need me? 
She wants social acceptance. What does Jesus say? You don't want either of those things. You really want to drink from the water that I'll give you. So she kind of plays along. Okay, give me that water. That'd be great. You're greater than Jacob. Give me that water. I'll drink from it. Check this out. Verse 16, go call your husband. What? Tell him to come here. Now, there might be some cultural stuff going on here, right? He's talking to a woman at the well by himself, but we know that Jesus is way deeper than that. He's at 17 levels beyond what we are at and definitely in his day. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Okay, she's telling a half-truth. So Jesus calls her on it. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So what you said is true. You don't have a husband, in other words. Listen to her response. The woman said to her, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. (laughs) So Jesus says, you think that you want husbands, and they never work out for you, do they? You think a man's going to give you the joy that you're really after, and it's just not working for you. You don't really want that, though, do you? Now, she's going to move to something else. So she's going to pivot like we do often with Christ. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's going to bring a religious argument in. I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Which one's right? Now, Jesus is going to, for an instant here, he's going to confront that a little bit. Then he's going to let it go. Watch. Woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. That's pretty intense. But the hour's coming. Now, watch. He's going to totally dismiss that. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, there's two things happening here. Jesus is saying, God's after somebody who's honest right after she lied. And on the flip side, he's inviting her to say, it doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan, you can be a worshiper of God too. Doesn't matter where you worship him. Doesn't matter where you're going to be. You too are invited. Come, drink from this fountain. A real invitation, isn't it? Now here's the thing. Last thing she says here, she's gonna dismiss him. But really she is teeing it up. This, this is, he's about to knock this one out of the park on her when she does this. Verse 25, the woman said to him, well, I know Messiah's coming. And when he comes, he'll tell us. She's, she's trying to end the conversation. In other words, she's saying, well, you and I can't really figure this out. When Messiah comes, he'll figure it out between us. Watch what Jesus says. I who speak to you am he. Now, there's so much going on here, but the two things that are most important is, A, he's eliminating that argument that they ought to wait for anything. So he's like, no, you got to come and drink. Number two, what's happening here, in the book of John, there are seven I am statements. This could be like eight. If you go into the translation, what he's saying, I'm he. This happens again in Gethsemane when the soldiers come and say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am he, and they all fall backwards. They're blown back by the glory of Christ, and it says they're terrified to arrest the guy because he just hearkened back to Moses. She says, are you greater than Jacob? And he says, I am who I am. That's what he said there. Messiah is going to show up. Jesus says, I am him. I am who I am. Or in other words, Delight yourself here. You think that you want social acceptance. You think that it might be, you know, you not having to come to the well in the middle of the day because you don't want to have to be facing up with the Jews who don't accept you already. You think it's in a man and you've had five husbands. Now the guy that's with you won't even commit to you. You think it's in him. It's not him. 
You think it's in your religious, your, your religious preferences on where you worship. It's not there either. It's here. And that is this morning what God speaks to us from Psalm 37. He invites us into his presence, not to merely see God's glory, but to experience and delight in his glory. Satan sees God's glory. The children of God delight in his glory. They feast, they taste, and see that the Lord is good. So when our chief desire is God alone, every other desire gets ordered appropriately. Listen to me, and I think this is so important. If you, when we talk about desire, you think about the unhealthy, sinful desires of your heart, and you think that you can fight that with willpower, you are fighting the flames of hell with a water gun. What you need is to supplant that unhealthy desire with a deeper, passionate, robust affection for Christ. It's the only way. Paul says in Colossians 3, it looks like wisdom to be a stoic and think that you can just, by your own grit, do the right thing. But it has no power in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The flesh and Satan are, are stronger, they're craftier than you and I. We are weak. But what does Jesus say? When the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. It's a delight in God that overwhelms our delight in other things. Or to put it another way, like C.S. Lewis says, it's we gotta be stop being so satiated by counterfeits and taste the real thing. You don't go back to ramen when you've had filet mignon. I'll close with what Augustine says about it. This is uh, Augustine, he, he wrote in the Confessions, he's so many things I could have picked from him, but this is the one that I think maybe wraps it up best. He said, he who made all said, ask what you will, yet nothing will you find more precious, nothing will you find better than himself who made all things. Seek him who made all things, and in him and from him will you have all things which he made. All things are precious because all are beautiful, but what more beautiful than he? Strong are they, but what stronger than he? Nothing would he give you rather than himself. If you have found better, ask for it. If you ask for anything else, you will not only wrong him, but you will harm yourself by preferring to him that which he made when he would give you himself who made everything. So the invitation this morning is to delight yourself in the Lord so that he might give you the desire of your heart. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Lord, I want to finish how we started. We do not know ourselves as well as you know us. So would you now bring forward the counterfeits of our hearts so that we could instead choose to delight in you, drink from a real well, stop hewing out cisterns for ourselves that are full of sand, wells that are full of dirt, and God, drink from the living water. Help us, God. Show us. Jesus, would you not only set aside like you did for the woman at the well all of the things that are trying to vie for our attention, but would you stand forth and say, I am who I am for us this morning. I will be who I will be. Would you say that in power so that we could experience the joy that is knowing you like the psalmist did when he said he panted for you, when he wept for you to just know you. 
God, would you give us that desire so that every other desire would find its place? We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.